This week, it's 3 to one go with Cosmo Macero. Then Cosmo interviews Harry Boris, founder of the legendary Channel Nightclub in Boston. And two minutes with Tom, we're talking about the newfound squad in Washington, D.C. First up, 3 to one go Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, it's the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. America always loves a big milestone anniversary, and this one is pretty big. We'll discuss the coverage and conversation around this great moment of pride in American history. Yeah, I got to sit down with Hugh Drummond and talk through the uh, anniversary of Apollo 11, which he is uh, far more well-versed on than anyone else in our office. And we talked to O'Neill Associates in-house transportation and aviation expert Peter Goltz on the problems facing Boeing over the flawed 737 MAX aircraft. Finally, New England is bracing for several days of 100-plus degree heat. What do you do to either escape or embrace the dog days of summer? Joining me here on 321 Go is Kyan Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA On Air. Well, Kyan, we're bracing for that first real big heat wave of the summer. There's been some hot days lately. Not as hot as what's to come. No, it's, yeah. So the... Uh, all of the heat Triple hysteria digits. is uh, in full bloom. <laughs> yes. All right, we'll talk more about that in a bit. Let's get to it. All right, so 50 years ago, as of July 20th, Apollo 11 landed on the moon. Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong took steps, planted a flag, did all of the things. Pretty monumentous stuff. It's it's incredibly, uh, it's an incredible part of, of U.S. history, world history, in fact, the, um, we're recording this on July 18th, so we're two days into the mission at this point. Um, the astronauts are on their way to the moon, three brave souls, um, not knowing if they would ever return. Yeah, which is so scary to even contemplate, but like it was something so important to them and NASA and the world. And Yeah. Um, so you have kind of been geeking out on this a little <laughs> bit, and it makes total sense. So it was... It was monumental to, to what you said. It was, it was the country, it was the world. 650 million people watched as Neil Armstrong touched down, took his first steps on the moon. Mm-hmm. Like, and that means to me what I like to think about. That was 650 million crowded around very small TVs mm-hmm. in their living rooms with their family mm-hmm. one evening. I don't know what day of the week it was. And what's remarkable to me is nothing like that will ever happen again. With technology, phones, computers, iPads, multiple televisions in a house, that will never happen in the same way. Right, people watching at Times Square and things yeah. like that. I mean, it's it is. You're right. Technology today is different. So even if we have an incredible uh, space event in the future, Mars, the Moon again, maybe it it just won't transpire the same way. And. Um, and Neil Armstrong's footprints and Buzz Aldrin's fo- footprints are still there. Yeah, they haven't cool. moved. That's they haven't cool. been touched. It's really, and really the flag. cool. And the flag. The but American flag is, is there, too. And, you know, Michael Collins was the, um, he was in the um, uh, 
uh, capsule uh, circling, uh, orbiting the moon while Buzz and Neil were uh, walking around. And Mike Collins had, you know, the scary thought, gee, if they can't get back, I have to come, I, I go back alone. I have to leave my, my friends there, my, yeah. my colleagues there. Very scary. President Nixon, um, who was president at the time, had two sets of remarks prepared for him. One was, of course, a successful lunar landing and, and return. The other it was remarks prepared in case they had to abandon Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon. Yeah. With, and to anyone, you know, we were talking about this before, anyone who you know, you always have to plan for both. Um, I can't imagine the speechwriters that had to mm-hmm. write that mm-hmm. um, and how hard that was. Thank God he didn't have to deliver it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talk about technology and how different it is today. You sent around a very interesting list of mm-hmm. all of the amazing things, um, some fun and, and silly, but but all that have made a huge difference in our lives come from this, from yeah. Apollo, NASA. Yeah, and it wasn't a complete list. I just picked a, a few things that I think are, were fascinating, uh, things like cordless tools, I mean, which is so uh, standard today. Mm-hmm. I mean, these were developed by NASA uh, for uh, for you know, them, basically. working in space and, and so forth. Duct tape, um, the computer joystick. I mean, <laughs> think of that. The yeah. computer joystick came out of NASA and you know needing to maneuver the uh, lunar lander and yeah. or lunar rover rather. Um, all cool stuff. Smoke detectors. Sorry, can't really? forget about those. Yeah. Oh, who knew? Well, Apollo 11 this Apollo week. 11, 50-year anniversary. Um, lots happening in the news. There was, And also a really great um, column in the Washington Post this week about a baseball game that um, I don't know the name of off the top of my head, but go find it and read it. It's incredibly interesting and very heartwarming. Yeah, they paused in the, I think, the seventh inning or at some point. It, they, they, whenever I'm it sorry, happened. whenever it happened, they paused because it went, uh, they announced that this game. had happened and everyone's saying, God bless America. Yeah. It's a cool it's a cool story, so go track that down too. Thanks you. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Oh that looks beautiful for radio. It has a stark beauty all its own. It's uh, like m- much of the high desert of uh, the United States. It's uh, different, but it's very pretty out here. Hi, this is Cayenne Isaacson. We are here with Hugh Drummond and Peter Goltz on the line, uh, our senior vice president here at O'Neill and Associates. He was also the managing director at the National Transportation Safety Board from 1996 to 2000. And Peter, together with his former colleague Jim Hall, uh, has a great op-ed in the New York Times today on the Boeing 737 MAX crisis um, that's been going on for quite some time now. So, Peter, um, safety begins at the top, you write. Tell us more. Well, Jim and I were both increasingly concerned about how the investigation into the two tragic accidents uh, of the 737 MAX were being conducted. I mean, we felt as though uh, that Boeing, as the manufacturer of this jet, was largely ducking responsibility, and we had seen it before. Uh, 
when we were at the safety board, there were two 737 accidents that had taken place. And our investigators believed strongly that there was a flaw in the design of the 737 rudder. Boeing absolutely resisted uh, that concept and uh, placed blame, as they have uh, on the MAX accidents, solely on the pilots. And we felt this this kind of lack of uh, uh, transparency, lack of being willing to examine your own work critically, uh, was really uh, a fatal flaw. And part of the problem is also at the FAA. Absolutely. The FAA, which is the regulator, uh, really doesn't have the resources to oversee uh, particularly new plane certification. They designate uh, a, a portion of the approval process to Boeing employees who uh, self-certify uh, portions of the aircraft. And in this case, the uh, flight management system called the MCAS system, was very complex. And the FAA did not have the expertise to really drill down deep on what the authority of this new flight management system was and how it worked. And Boeing uh, installed the system uh, without a great deal of oversight from the FAA. And it's, it, it's, it's such a different plane than the original 737, uh, you write in, in, in the op-ed, um, you know, in terms of passenger numbers, in terms of length, in terms of engines. Yeah, this is, this is, this, the 737 MAX was certified as a derivative of the original 737, which first flew back in the 1960s. And the reason it's certified in that manner is that it's a cost savings device. But in the case of the 737 MAX, you know, it was, you know, uh, much larger much uh, heavier uh, and had more complex avionics than was ever imagined in the original 737. Uh, it, it seats, you know, uh, close to 230 people in some configurations. The original 737 sat just over 110, maybe 118. So it, it was a really different aircraft, uh, but it was still certified under that original uh, certification process uh, from 50 years ago. So, Peter, I got to tell you, when I read this, I find this scary, like just very simply very scary. Um, and you call for changes, you outline some of the changes, but what can we do, not we, but what should be done right now? Because this is, it's incredibly scary to think about people getting, hundreds of people getting on planes every day that are, you know, not recently certified, that are not functioning, and nobody seems to be taking any sort of accountability for the fact that people are dying. That's, that's right. Well, the 737 MAX is not getting back in the air anytime soon, despite uh, 
you know, the kind of pie-in-the-sky hopes that uh, Boeing had and some of the air carriers had. You know, uh, some of the air carriers saying, well, we're going to see it back in the sky in July or August. It's not going to happen. The FAA and being pushed by the other regulatory bodies across uh, the globe, they are not going to be able to put this plane back in the air until... Everyone is a hundred percent sure uh, that that the issues that contributed to the two accidents are addressed. I mean, in terms of the planes in the air now that are flying, uh, we have the safest air system in the world, and the air travel is still, particularly in the United States, the safest form of of uh, of, of travel. But uh, this was a failure of leadership at Boeing, and it frankly was a failure of leadership uh, at the FAA. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Peter's um, op-ed runs in the New York Times opinion page on July 18th. You can link to it from our website. Thanks, Peter. All right, Cayenne, as we approach another summer weekend, heat wave bearing down. We've got three days lined up or expected. It's already been pretty hot in the 90s, but... 100-plus degree heat. It's supposed to feel like 108 Saturday. That's disgusting. 108? That's disgusting. What what is that, a radio station? Cut it out. (laughs) Um, That's pretty horrifying. What do you do to either – do you beat the heat or do you embrace the heat? I kind of do both, and I'll tell you about that. But My husband has made it very clear he has no intentions of being on outside outside at all. Um, Originally, I thought about the beach, thinking it would be cooler at the beach. Mid 90s at the beach. I don't think that's great air quality. Um, we're thinking about taking our son skating because he hasn't been on his hockey skates in a couple months. So it seems like a great day to go be like, cold. Wait, 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 in like a hockey, hockey town, USA, that place or one of those deals? No, like at the rink in our town. Oh, okay. it's open. Um, yeah, that's good. And uh, we might go to the movies. Yeah, that's a classic one. How about just cranking your AC? Yeah, that I'll do. I mean, I do that all the time. I like yeah, to be driving around's a good technique. I just like to be comfortable. So yeah. um, I just I don't want to. That's that's unbearable. Yeah. It feels like a hundred and eight. My it, God, it's tough. You should move around a lot out there. I mean, you you got to um in the air quality. You got to hide. Got to worry about the air quality. My my pet peeve is I don't really want to be super super hot indoors. I want to be cool. I can be. I, I don't mind if I'm hot for a while but i like the, i like the ac on crank especially in the bedroom at night and stuff in the living room so but do you dare golf in this kind of weather i i, I do and i don't uh, saturday sounds like it could be downright dangerous so i'm glad you brought it up i love to play golf in the heat in fact it's yeah. my favorite weather yeah. but you know i'm yeah. a big guy you, you you lose all your fluids it's probably gets dangerous at 108 degrees just just saying that's maybe. my guess um but i like doing that and i think a little safer I like sitting right down on the south shore on the on the seawall and just sitting there and just sweltering in my chair <laughs> and drinking water and maybe a couple of beers, but just sweltering and and, and becoming just really just feeling crisp the heat. like bacon and then going inside to a cool, dry, and, uh, and comfortable place. But I'll sit there for three, four hours. Really? And people think I'm crazy. My wife thinks I'm, I'm she loves the sun, but she's like, you're, you're crazy. You're going you're gonna, to yeah. burn to death. 
So anyways, a lot. I mean, I'm more I'm looking forward I, to I'm it. less worried about me, more worried. You, know, you got a kid. You can, you can, it's more of the kids. You got to make sure. And the, oh, God good. forbid, the elderly. Be careful. Yeah. Um, so. Also, I, to make a plug, because we represent the Coalition for Homeless Individuals, if oh. you see any homeless uh, people out there that might need some help, maybe give them some water, call 911 if you need to. People need help in this heat. Yeah. Elderly it, as well. Absolutely. The extremes. Winter and heat. Absolutely. Good advice. All right, Cayenne. Thank you very much. Stay cool, Cosmo. You too. That's going to do it for another edition of 321 Go. Our program is recorded in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room at our building in the heart of a government center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Masera. Up next, an interview with Harry Boris of the Channel Nightclub and the new podcast series, A Boston Venue, The Channel Story. All right, up next on OA On Air, we're joined by Harry Boris, who is the founder of the historic Channel Nightclub, Channel Rock Club in Boston, which was arguably, really not arguably, the greatest rock club during the era of about 1980 to 1991 or so. Harry is... uh, presenting a project called Boston Venue. It is a history of the channel. Harry, it's great to have you on here. Hello, Cosmo. Thanks for joining nice us. To talk to you again. It is. It's nice. To, it's, no it, it's great to be speaking with you. Now, <clears throat> tell me how, I want to go back to, a little bit to the history of the channel itself, but at what point did you decide uh, to pull this project together, uh, the channel story? Well, I mean, I was working in a totally different environment, and I always kind of said the channel found me. It was an old disco. Somebody had uh, uh, gone ahead and picked it up on, on I think it was on an, on an auction, on bankruptcy option, uh, auction, and uh, decided to reopen it as an oldies lounge. So he booked an oldies band, and you know, he did some advertising, and he booked them for like a week or so. But nobody came. The place was not in a good location. It was in a very desolate spot of Boston. Uh, it was across the Fort Point Channel. And right now it's very vibrant. But back then it was dark, desolate. And, you know, nobody went there at night unless you were you know, going to the channel of the Mad Hatter, as it was known uh, you know, prior to 1979. So, anyway, so the place was failing as a, as a oldies lounge because he thought he could get an upscale audience and they'd like it and come back. But nobody came. So he was kind of desperate, and he, he was looking for some kind of a solution. And and I just thought that you know I looked around, and I just I, I just I just thought rock and roll uh, was the way to go. Live music, and not necessarily just rock and roll, but I just thought live music. And the place had a very unique license. It had the largest. Uh, uh, it's called general uh, occupancy uh, license, which means that. We could do, we had a legal capacity of 1,600 people and we didn't have to have seats or serve food. And many licenses had those restrictions. So we could sell entertainment and alcohol. And basically that was, I thought that was a good formula because we'd, we'd compete even with some small theaters for some, uh, for some decent acts. It sure was. I mean, you had, um, Number one, the greatest local acts across every genre. I think that was an important part of your formula, Harry, that you, uh, it wasn't limited to one or two types of music. It was just about no. every genre you might see on any, on any given night or every different night of, of the week. 
Um, you had a tremendous sound system, and you had a, a 1,600-occupant um, venue. That it really it was an intimate setting, yet you felt like you were at almost an arena show when you're up there close to the stage. Well, we had we had a uh, we had an arena grade sound system. I mean, some of the speakers, some of the speaker cabinets were were actually in Woodstock. Wow. Some of them, some of them, and they were you know they were reused and re uh, you know purposed. And, and there was even a, a few uh, speaker boxes that uh, had been used at, at uh, a Beatles concert at Shea Stadium. So we had what we wanted was an arena grade sound system because it was a big building, twenty thousand square feet. It wasn't a really great acoustic building because it was a cinder block and corrugated roof. So you had to work on the acoustics to make them right. And, you know, so we had to, uh, so basically the whole idea of the channel was that it was, uh, like I said, in kind of a desolate part of the city. It was actually in South Boston, which at the time was not the most tolerant neighborhood uh, in the city. So, and, and again, we wanted diversity. We wanted to do every act that had an audience that included, uh, you know, some semi, or maybe even not semi, but some controversial acts, you know, rap, uh, hardcore punk. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, reggae, you know, world beat. I mean, we had African bands, we had European bands, we, we had, uh, you know, pretty much any uh, act that, uh, you know, had a credible, and, you know, and, and again, there was a lot of Boston acts. Boston was very yeah. hot at the time. And there's a lot of talent that, that needed a place like the channel where they can go in and really do a show, not a bunch of cover tunes or, you know, just a, do a real show, a real concert. And I think that's what people appreciated. Yeah, I was in my early 20s at the time, like thousands of people of that uh, age. I, I was exposed to a lot of new and different music j just by being at the channel. I worked there one summer uh, as a doorman. So it was a great experience. Are there, a, are there a couple of specifics? You had so many in, incredible shows across every genre. Uh, yeah, Iggy Pop, the Allman Brothers Band, and uh, all, it, all different types of punk rock from the time and hardcore, and, and, you, know, and you had Rick James there. Are there shows yeah. that stand George, out? You know, P-Funk, you know. Yep. Well, you know, the, 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 the more famous shows are like James Brown, B.B. King, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. I mean, those guys, you know, were touring constantly. I mean, I, some of them are still touring at the, in their 80s. Yeah. And those were great shows and everything, you know, and I, you know, there's some really nice people and a, a lot of them after years and years, decades on the road, they were still, you know, gracious and, and um, but the, the real, the, the, the real cool shows were shows like, you know, the English Beat that came over from England and, yep. and uh, you know, uh, King Sunny Ade from Africa, you know, 14-piece band that was, like, smoking. I mean, just uh, amazing. Or uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, you know, doing a, uh, just a, a, a that that night was unbelievable. It was just like, he was so hot that night, you know, and, you know, I think he died soon after that. Uh, you know, Roy Orbison did his last, uh, you know, live, uh, live audience performance at the channel before he died. He played Friday and Saturday for us, and then he died that Monday. Wow, I did not know that. That's that's a, what a what a piece yeah. of a little piece of history. Wow. Yeah, and, and as a matter of fact, one of the one of our close, uh, uh, you know, the people that used to work for us, and he was also an amateur photographer. He took the last pictures of Roy Orbison. He ended up giving them to. to his wife and uh, they established a relationship and uh, she got all the pictures uh, that he took of, of uh, Roy Orbison, including the negatives. 
That's terrific. So there was, I mean, there was a lot of, there was a lot of, uh, you know, young DMC, you know, we paired them up with a, with a you know, real uh, up and coming local rock and roll band, straight rock and roll. You know, so we, we, we like to mix it up. We like to, you know, we like to, to put, uh, to, to bring people together. And very often, you know, even though the show might be like an African show, we'd have, you know, a, a mixed audience. There'd be college kids, there'd be older people, there'd be African and dashikis, there'd be, you know, uh, you know, uh, urban people. It's just like, you know, we like that. And, and, uh, and that worked. I think that's what made the, made the club work because people were, were not coming there or affect or anything else. They were, there, they were there to see a show and to, to kind of get an emotional experience out of it, you know? Yeah, it was it was really a remarkable place. We've been talking to Harry Boris, who's the founder of the channel. Now, um, after your after your uh, great run in association with the channel sort of came to an end, the club itself had sort of a notorious ending, and, and that's part of, I think, um, uh, at some point uh, your your history project. But let's let's tell people how they can learn a lot more about the channel, its history, and the great work that you're doing with. Uh, with some other folks and journalists to, to put this together. It's the channelstory.com, right? The yeah, channelstory.com. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, the, and the, so what we did is I've been writing a book for about 10 years, and then somebody suggested, because, I, because I'm not a writer, I'm just kind of, I'm just, I just put down like, you know, and I, and I ask people to contribute some stories. So somebody suggested a podcast. And so, I mean, last year, they actually tried Frank Salemi, Cadillac Frank Salemi for the murder of Stephen DeSaro, who was reported the last channel manager. In 1991, we ran into some financial uh, trouble and uh, we filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy and, uh, and a, a buyer emerged, the person who used to own a club in Boston, and uh, we knew him for years as a club owner and a businessman, and he emerged as wanting to buy the club. So we went into an agreement which we thought was a good agreement, and uh, long story short, uh, the, he's, he's, he was uh, there was a bunch there was a gangster behind him, uh, Cadillac Frank Salemi, and he basically you know they they managed to to you know get the club and um, the details will come in a future podcast episode, but they managed to get the club and um, they ran to the ground they reopened it as a gentleman's club like a like a strip club of sorts yep. and then for whatever reason they they actually the the, the guy that actually uh, was the person that bought the club and appointed himself manager disappeared and his remains were found just a couple of years ago and and then the fbi came to my door asked me to help them uh, uh if that, if i would you know help them convict salemi i did whatever i could and basically then then I started go back to 1980, and then go from there forward, and then yeah. it'll end up at uh, yeah. Well, it's uh, it sounds like a, it's a very Boston story, that's for sure. But it's also terrific. It is a Boston story. Yeah. It's a, it's also a terrific uh, piece of music history. Um, yeah. and you can and look, OA on air is a podcast that loves good podcasts. Thechannelstory.com. You can subscribe and listen to the channel podcast series. Uh, it's a terrific assembly of information. There's show notes for each episode, so it's great stuff. Harry Boris, thanks so much for joining us here on OA On Air, and good luck with this Thank terrific you. and important project. Thank you, Cosmo. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Okay.
Thanks to Harry for joining us, and be sure to check out his podcast series on the Channel Nightclub. Up next, Two Minutes with Tom. Hello, Tom. Good afternoon. Hi, Kyan. How are you? I'm hot. Two Minutes with Tom. You've been outside. Yes, I just got back from being yeah, outside. Yeah, it's, it's probably best to stay inside today, That's my Friday, plan. Saturday, Sunday. That's my plan through the weekend. Yeah. 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 I think we're going to take my son to play some hockey in a nice, cold ice rink. There you are. That's my plan. I, I pray that it's not 4 o'clock in the morning that you do that. No, he's too young for that. He doesn't have games. We're just going to take him to skate so I can oh, I stand see. inside the cold. <laughs> <laughs> but there are other things happening in the world. So it's not the heat we're going to talk about with two minutes of Tom. It's going to be? The squad. Squad. The You're squad. referring to the four women members of Congress that are women of color. That, and, are, uh, that are taking a stand. Are rookies. Their first year, their first termers. Yeah. But not behaving the way rookies have typically behaved, not being overly deferential and, you know, and I'm not saying that that's a, a bad thing, I th- you know. Mm-hmm. Um, they've come in and they've really, again, they're taking a stand. They're standing up for themselves, which is incredibly important. Um, but for, you know, I think Ayanna Presley said it really well, that for so many others, like this squad is not just the four of them. It's, it's everybody. And um, everyone's talking about it. Yeah, and and I, I must say that um, there are four women who stand up for women's rights. They're all diverse. They're people of color. And they have lived lives that I, as a white man, have never lived before or even began to understand, you know, the institutional bigotry that can exist from time to time in their lives. So it, it's certainly generational, their comeuppance. And they're they're wanting to kind of create a voice in Congress that hasn't been there. I, I understand it. I don't agree philosophically with everything the four of them do, but I do understand their right to say whatever it is they think, uh, and I think that ought to be protected. Particularly when attacked. So particularly when nasty. attacked, and Republicans can say anything they want, but they know as well as I or you know that. What the president did last week by telling them all to go back to where they came from is a particular attack of hatred playing once again to his political core. Um, and it's, you know, it's a distraction because it takes the president and Congress away from their, what they should be, their everyday jobs of making the progress of this country happen and work. And, and it just hasn't been the case. I think for Nancy Pelosi to stand up and do what she did it looked like it looked like Democratic Party grandstanding with uh, the vote for, for taking that vote, and and that was a feeling that you shared with me. But but I, I see it just a wee bit differently. I think two things. I think she felt as the leader of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, had to stand up to the co-equal branch of government, the presidency, and just say, you know something, Mr. President, you're wrong. Shame on you. Shame on you because nobody else in Congress is doing it. Number one. Number two. I think she had to unify the Democratic Party behind those four women to show that they really are one party. Everybody may not agree with everybody else's point of view, Mm -hmm. but they're the same party, and they're going to be protected, especially when they're attacked by by Donald Trump. That's a good point, and that's not how I looked at it. And Mm -hmm. actually looking at it that way um, makes it far more valuable than just being sort of a PR tactic. Um, Also, on the heels of what we know happened last week, in Congress when Nancy Pelosi had to 
bring them in and you know people were were thinking that there was a divide there so i think that was probably a little bit in in response to that as well i think it i think it was in response to that and and i think what she's trying to do is say to the four of these women hey look only one of you have been in government before there are sensitivities that have to be paid attention to and we're all elected to represent our respective districts in the u.s house but we're all elected to make things happen here too and if we don't work together we're not going to make that happen but we're with you. But that's right. That's exactly right. Well, I don't think we've heard the last of, of him uh, on this issue, uh, him being the, the president. So I'm sure there will be more to come. But, uh, but thank you. No, you're welcome. And I, I want, I, I'm sure there'll be more to come too. It's pretty predictable when you have Donald Trump as a president wanting to talk about race related issues because, again, it plays to his core. And every two, three, or four weeks, some brand new thing comes up which ignites his switch that gets him to do it one more time. But the Congress and I think the Democratic Party ought to be thinking about the importance of, of their job, number one. And I think principle among their job, making, making sure people are educated, making sure people are healthy, making sure that people have jobs and the economy is going to be as strong as it needs to be in order to keep people working and happy. And um, Back to basics. Back to basics, number one. You know, it was the, it was the, it was the issue of health care and the loss of Obamacare that gave the Democrats 40 new seats in Congress in 2018. It's those same types of issues that are going to bring them back in 2020. That's two and a half minutes with Tom. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Now, don't forget to subscribe on whatever your favorite listening platform may be. You can also check us out on our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week.